Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Got a real treat for you today. I have been a big fan of Daniel Coyle for a long time. A great writer. You know, we describe him as a New York Times bestselling author. I have a New York Times bestselling book, but I don't write the way this man writes. And so I read The Talent Code years ago, and it has had a huge impact on my family, on how I run my business, on how I have worked on my own skills, how we've approached sports and other activities in our family. And The Talent Code is so instrumental in that. Dan, you've written some great books. Hardball, I see now you're also a special advisor to the Cleveland Indians, man. (laughs) I love this latest book, The Culture Code, which is the secrets of highly successful groups and very, very pertinent, especially for so many of the people we have that are in leadership roles and have teams and things like that. But uh, one thing that's in your bio that I always want to ask you about, and I've watched uh, your kids grow up. Your kids were small when we first met, but you Mm -hmm. live most of your year in Cleveland, Ohio, and then you've spent the summers in Alaska for the past how many years? How did that all come about? Oh, I grew up there. I grew up there. It's, it's my Ireland, you might say. <laughs> Green and windy and uh, rains a bit, and it's home. Spoken like a Notre Dame grad, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Now, I grew up there, and yeah. so I just got absolutely connected to it. And we live in a little town at the end of the road called Homer, and it's described usually as a, a quaint drinking village with a fishing problem. <laughs> I love it. I got to tell you, I'm not a big TV watcher. I mean, whole series come, and I got to say, I'm kind of clueless. My kids are like, oh, Dad, did you ever watch Friends? I'm like, no. Hey, Dad, did you ever watch The Big Bang Theory? <laughs> but there's one show that I've never missed an episode of, and it's The Last Alaskans. Mm. I just love it. I don't know why. I, maybe I'm so terrified of the concept of having to live out there by myself and, you know, get a moose to survive the winter or whatever. But I'm fascinated with, and actually, Beverly and I were just talking about it the other day. It's on our bucket list to have a trip to Alaska. So, Oh, uh, you got to come to Homer. We'll show you around. All right. It's a great place, please. That's That'd great stuff. Well, before yeah. we kind of jump into the whole culture code, why don't you give us a little background on life in the Coyle household growing up there in Alaska? Yeah, no, when you grow up in Alaska, you get used to seeing things as an outsider. Mm. You know, you go down and visit your relatives in the States, and everything is strange, and there's things called shopping malls and highways. Mm. And you have kind of a new view of things, and I think that's kind of behind me becoming a writer, seeing all that as strange and exotic and wanting to figure out what's going on there. And you have that classic observational talent, and you kind of, hmm, why does that work, and hmm, why does that not work, and it's layered throughout your work. Was your mom and dad from Alaska originally? No, they're from the Midwest. They're from Illinois, from County Cavan originally. Come on, you good thing, of course, the coils. That's true, of course. But, yeah, from the Midwest, came up there with the military. And most people, when you get to Alaska, you either stay 15 minutes or you stay for 100 years. Wow. We're in for the long run. That's great. I grew up in a real competitive family, and so I got kind of fascinated early on with what makes people tick, what makes performers tick. Mm. You You see great performance everywhere. You see it in your life. You see it in your world. Uh, you see it in sports, you see it in music, and what's really going on there? That was the question that drove me. Right. Well, again, and I recommend anyone who's never read The Talent Code, as you went through sports and academics and music and all the different things, and the tennis in Russia and all the different dynamics is fantastic stuff. So 
now you have the culture code, and so you've been yeah. doing that same gift of observation and analysis towards groups and what makes some successful and what makes some unsuccessful. So let's kind of dive in as far as culture. I love the fact, I mean, again, I can tell you were Notre Dame trained. I mean, you open up the book and it says culture from the Latin cultus, which means care. Talk to us about that because I don't think most people in today's world when they're talking about culture, they're usually not talking about caring for people. No, they're not. They're not. It's funny. That word has come to be so important and so vague. You know, mm-hmm. we say, what makes that group special? It's their culture. It's their culture. It's their culture. And we know it's important, but we don't really know what it's made of and what's, you know, digging into it. There were two things that stood out to me right away. The first is that when you actually do measure healthy culture and, and weak culture, well, you find that it is very connected with performance. Mm-hmm. Groups that are tightly connected, groups that have got that bond, that chemistry, end up performing better. So culture isn't some, like, feel-good, extra Mm -hmm. frosting on a cupcake. It actually is performance. It's when people add up to more. You know, most groups add up to less than the sum of their parts. But great cultures, people add up to more. And that's that performance piece of the difference. And at the very bottom of that, you have to kind of look at it through a – I don't know, sort of through a caveman evolutionary lens, which is what makes people stick together. Mm. Now, there's, there's sort of two big tools. There's fear and there's love, mm-hmm. right? And fear works for a little while. Right. It, it works on simple problems. But when you get people to stick together because of care, because they genuinely have an investment in the other person, that works for complicated problems. It works for the long run. It's more fun. And it's what you find when you go to places like the San Antonio Spurs or Navy SEAL Team 6 mm-hmm. or any team or any of your teams that, mm-hmm. that really function together well. They like being together. There's energy when you're in the room. And that actually isn't just some extra thing. Like, that's everything. Right. Well, it's interesting because, you know, we've been big into this from the day we founded this company. We have this mission to impact and improve the lives of people. And the last five years in a row, we've been nominated as the best place to work in San Diego. And wow. we get thousands of applicants or people who want to join us and so on and so forth. But some people are under this false impression when, when we, they get here because we have huge high retention rates. We've got huge staff satisfaction and beyond. But like one of our core values is win together. Mm. And it's, you know, we're here to make a difference, get it done. And not just show up and it's, you know, impact and improve the lives of people. I think for us, there's a congruency and where, you know, when I read the book, it was like, it was kind of very confirming for me because we let people know, hey, we want to impact and improve the lives of the clients. And the way to do that first is we want to impact and improve your life as a staff member. And so if we impact your life, you're more equipped to go impact theirs. And then we go win together. And so it's not just one big group hug. And it seems like a lot of people have gotten caught up in this. You know, it started with Silicon Valley, and the next thing you know, you had the ping-pong tables and the no desks and all the free food and this and that, and it's a hip culture and so on and so forth. And I've seen a ton of those startups burn through a ton of capital, be yep. absolutely the worst places for human beings to be, but it's, oh, yeah, we've kind of burned our corporate bra and we're all about culture, but they yeah. stink, you know? So right. speak to that a little bit about performance and why it is such a big deal. You bet. There's two kinds of fun in the world, mm-hmm. right? Two kinds of engagement in the world. There's shallow fun, mm. shallow engagement, right. and deep fun, deep mm. engagement. And what you're talking about when you've got the ping pong table and the beers and the throw pillows and the Nerf guns, right. that is actually fun, but it's shallow. Right. It's shallow. It's sort of an, an easy kind of fun. 
the fun that you have in groups is around something deeper, which is vulnerability. Mm. There's a concept called a vulnerability loop where people are actually getting real, actually talking about what problems they share and sharing risk together. Mm. And when you talk to people who are in a good culture, it's funny. We kind of have this impression that good culture should be fun all the time. And that's not true. When you get to a Pixar, when you get to a San Antonio Spurs, it's not seashells and balloons. It's really not. Mm-hmm. It's people having these kind of hard conversations where they're getting real saying, you know what, we have a problem here. We have to figure this out together. Mm-hmm. And so the addiction and the fun and the real excitement and adrenaline comes from like solving hard problems with people you like. Mm. It's rare. It's a rare thing and it's a powerfully addictive thing. When you talk to people who've left the Spurs or have left SEAL Team 6, they often say the same thing. They go, God, it was the hardest work, but mm. a lot of times they'll get looped back to it because they love it so much. Right. So this idea of shallow fun that has kind of dominated our conception of what culture is, is deeply wrong. So some ways to get deeper with fun is give people in your team control over their experience. Mm. If you're talking about building a good orientation program, let the people build it. If you're talking about having a gym at work, put them in charge of it. Put them in charge of things. Put them in charge of their own experience and give them autonomy and ownership over that and create deep fun, not shallow stuff. Nice. That's great. You know, I've always loved the layout of your books. I'm a highly kind of pragmatic person. And so I love the fact that in the Culture Code, you have three main structures and it's three main skills for building this phenomenal culture and it's safety you touched on it here briefly vulnerability and then purpose can we spend a few minutes on each one of those because i thought it was phenomenal i would say you know here you are covering seal team six here you are covering the the spurs and many other top flight organizations and safety and vulnerability would just not be what i would think would come to mind the third one is purpose okay great i could see that but talk to me about safety and why is it first yeah Yeah, it's first because it is the ultimate connective tissue. When you picture a group, any group in the world, you got to kind of picture almost like a flock of birds or a school of fish, Mm -hmm. right? They're connected. They're moving through a complicated landscape. And the thing that connects them deep in our brains is that we share a future, Mm -hmm. that we are safe with them. We've got this this switch deep, deep, deep in our brains that is always monitoring whether we're safe or not. Mm Mm-hmm. And when you send a signal, whether with, maybe it's with your body language, maybe it's within an email, maybe it's in the way you have your parking lot set up, that we're not necessarily safe, that we don't share a future. You are setting off alarm bells in everybody's brains. And so what you see good groups doing is continually sending this river of signals in their facial expression, in their body language, in the way they organize meetings to have the least powerful person talk first, in the way they organize their parking lot. In the way that they interact in every way, they're continually sending signals like, hey, I see you. We share a future. Mm. And there's a one really super simple way I've seen people do that where they have the leader, a little technique called the two-line email. You have the leader send an email that says, hey, send it to the whole group. They have two lines. The first line is, tell me one thing you want me to keep doing. The second line is, tell me one thing you want me to stop doing. Mm. Little email, really, really big signal of care, connection, safety that, that allows that flock of birds, that school of fish, that group of people mm-hmm. to like stay connected and work together. Well, we've had a very successful experience with something similar to that where we, we have 14 different departments in the company and we'll go and meet with them and take their direct supervisors out of the loop and, and meet with them in a different way. Yeah. And then we just go, hey, tell me, you know, what's working well? You know, yeah. what needs improvement and what are your ideas? And we'll go through that systematically through the organization. And it's not a barbecue session. It's not a complaining session. It's genuinely, hey, what's going well? 
what needs improvement and what are your thoughts and just the fact that being heard seems to be yeah. a powerful thing for people feeling safe and also the fact that you're willing to go first and say i'm not perfect it's not perfect what do you guys think bingo it's like this healthy loop right right that's the second piece of this you're saying the vulnerability by saying that you're saying i'm not perfect right there's a Navy SEAL commander that shocked me when I was writing the book. I was researching this. And this is a guy named Dave Cooper who trained the troops that got bin Laden. Mm. And we were having breakfast, and at one point he says, you know, the four most important words that a leader can say are, I screwed that up. <laughs> Which, you know, it was completely stunning at the time because I'm thinking, oh, Navy SEALs, you guys should be pretty confident. Right. You know, you shouldn't be expressing weakness. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong. Because expressing weakness is what gives people permission to share in the group. It gives people permission to have a voice and to connect and to tell each other the truth. Mm -hmm. It's about the truth. Actually, I'll embarrass you, Brian, because when we met 10 years ago, you did something that very few people do. I had given a speech to your group, and usually people, when you're done with a speech, people say, oh, great job, and they shake your hand and off you go. You and I had a quick conversation where you gave me away. You sort of said, hey, you could have closed that idea a little bit better, and what would you think about this? And it was kind of a hard conversation to have, I think, in some ways, but it was great. I still remember it to this day, 10 years later, because it was like, it was kind of a little vulnerability loop there where you were willing to speak up and I was willing to hear you. Well, I'm glad you're still taking my calls, you know. <laughs> but, you know, the dynamic there was I saw, you know, and again, you came from the writing dynamic to the speaking dynamic, and the empathy I had was I came from the speaking dynamic to the writing dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's a different sport. How you put things together and how you write, it's rare. It's very rare how you communicate your thoughts and how you take extraordinarily complex, sometimes scientific stuff into everyday language. So when I saw that, I went, wow, because I'm an impact and improve guy, and I go, wow, you could reach even more people. And so yeah. that was the motivation behind it. And here's the deal. You know, I've done that with very few people because I recognize that very few people could ever receive it. And so I knew you could and I knew you did. I really like your take on this third scale because it just seems to be so overdone, so communicated. You talk about culture and culture is thrown around, but the word purpose is used all the time. It's funny, I, I was talking to a couple of little kids the other day and they keep saying, my mommy wants to know her purpose. What's a purpose? <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know what? Most people are as close to a purpose as a purpose. Maybe you can kind of walk through this a little bit because I just think it's, so clouded. And again, you bring great clarity to things. So talk about creating that purpose. Let me do it through a story. You know, any culture can succeed when the waters are calm, but when there's a crisis is when cultures are truly tested. And there's never been a crisis in the world that hit a group harder than the one that hit Johnson & Johnson in 1982, mm -hmm. the Tylenol poisonings. Those of you listeners remember, mm -hmm. you know, seven people died in Chicago. The product Tylenol, X-Strength Tylenol, was poisoned. Mm -hmm. And so Johnson & Johnson gets a call that their product is a murder weapon. And Jeez. what happened next was extraordinary. They swung into action all together, all doing the right thing at the right time. They invented and rolled out tamper-proof packaging in eight weeks. They pulled voluntarily $100 million worth of product from the shelves against the advice of the FBI. The FBI said, don't pull it, and they pulled it. And they also were like unbelievably open with the legal community and with the public. And as a result, Tylenol is still here. Mm. It's the gold standard of crisis response. They responded perfectly, all of them doing the right thing at the right time. And when you dig into why, you find this really interesting guy named Jim Burke, who spent the previous three years at the company doing an intensive 
all company conversation around a really simple question. What comes first? Mm. Like what comes first for Johnson & Johnson? Is it the stakeholders? Because they could come first. Is it the stock price? Is it the workers? Is it the hospitals they work with? And what they came up with together as a group in this intense conversation, what comes first? The health of the user of our product. Mm. The health. And they carved it in granite. They call it the credo. And because of that conversation, which happened three years before the poisoning, they were able to do the right thing at the right time. They didn't have to have a meeting or write a memo to say, hey, should we invent tamper-proof packaging? They knew where the North Star was, and so they did it. They didn't have to write a memo to pull $100 million worth of product or have a meeting. They just could do it. Right. So that idea, you know, we think of purpose as being something that's like in our hearts, but in fact, purpose is in the windshield. Mm. You have to build a windshield that shows where True North is, just like you have with, you know, win together. Mm-hmm with a mission to impact and improve the lives of people. That's a North Star. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you can't just sort of keep in your gut or keep in your heart. You have to put it in the windshield continually because it works kind of like GPS. Right. Like if you talk about it and if you live it, if your behavior points that direction, then other people can orient toward it. So it's not a contest of being really eloquent. It's not about mm-hmm. being really beautiful or flowery with your language. It's about being clear. Right, And it's about being clear relentlessly. And when you look at good leaders, they over-communicate the purpose by a factor of like 10. Sure. And there's even a little tool that people can use that I write about in the book a little bit called a mantra map, where you distill the key actions that you want your people to have, and you kind of build out a map. Like, how do you want people to respond to failure? Mm -hmm. How do you want people to respond to frustration? What do you want number one priority to be? And making that explicit is like the most powerful thing you can do. Well, again, it's very confirming. We've had our mission for years, and then the application is the core values. And it's on the name badge. It's on the sign. It starts every meeting out. And I've always told people, you know, it's like, and again, if we ever have the come fly the friendly skies motto and don't live it out, what happens is it becomes the opposite. Yep. It becomes your undoing. It becomes the very opposite of what you're standing for and who you are and what you are. And if you look at, you know, publicly traded companies today that are responding based on shareholder value and shareholder price or damage control, you know, they bring in the marketing people, they bring in the spin doctors, and it always ends up in this long, laborious, you know, pulling the Band-Aid off the hairy arm as slow as possible, mm. and nobody gets out alive. And it's also easy for all of us. We all have principles and values. It's easy to miss it. For me, it's in everything we do. It's every event we do and so on and so forth. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I felt the burden of that. You know, and sometimes it can burn you out. But at the end of the day, you know, people can never hear it enough. And it's at the end of the day, this is what I'm willing to die for. I'm willing for the business to fail putting these principles in place I'm not willing for the business to succeed without having these principles in place. And it's got to be that clear. It's got to be that directed and so on and so forth. Let me ask you this. Here's the question. What do you do if you have a less than zippy culture? You don't have the San Antonio Spurs. And by the way, the San Antonio Spurs weren't the San Antonio Spurs, you know, 30 years ago. So how do you turn around a bad culture? Yeah, that's a serious thing. I think there's a few different ways to think about it. One is the culture you really control is the 15 feet around you. Mm Mm-hmm. So you cannot control everything. So start with that. And then secondly, you almost think of it like a whole team has to learn. A, it's like learning a new sport together. Mm-hmm. And when you learn a new sport, you have to figure out a couple things right away. Where are you? Where are you right now? Mm-hmm. And then where do you want to go? 
right? And that process of kind of a, you know, it's a come to Jesus culture capture, you could call it, mm. where you get people together and you start talking about, all right, what are the core tensions here? What are we trying to do? What are the competing goods that were, and you define that stuff. So getting in a group and really trying to define those two hard things to define, where are you and where do you want to go? Mm-hmm. And the third thing I'd say is be patient. Mm-hmm. The flywheel of culture spins slowly, and a lot mm-hmm. of times it can be extremely frustrating for leadership mm-hmm. who are in tune with this, because I've heard people knock around a lot of numbers. Oh, it takes seven years to change a culture. I don't know if there's any hard number you can put on it, but it ain't fast, because human behavior is hard to change. Right. But the exciting thing is, when you get that momentum and that larger narrative rolling, it has a momentum of its own that all good groups feel. You feel it when you walk into one of your groups. You feel it when you walk into any good group. And so it's a big investment to make that change. But kind of having faith in the process is a huge part of it. Well, it's interesting. When I first read the book, obviously I'm a business guy. We have clients that have groups and teams. We have small groups that meet all over North America. We have almost 400 groups that meet once a month. I had all these applications. When I went back through it again, you know, the next thing that came to my mind is this is a great way to lead a family. And I I thought safety, vulnerability, and purpose, you know, it's a great way to lead a family. The 15 feet around you, the culture capture, the being patient, it's a great way to run a family. You know, and there's a lot of people today, they have blended families, and all of a sudden they have a disrupted culture or a change in culture. I thought about it. I know this is a book built on organizations, but it's for successful groups. And the first team, you know, the Greek word for family is tema, right? It's where we get team. And I thought, so the second time through, that's what came to me. I don't know if that was an intentional thing on your part, but that's where it came to for me. Yeah. No, that's great. I really appreciate that. I didn't know that about the Greek tema. That's awesome. I had my father hat on during most of the interviews. And one of the pieces of advice that really stayed with me was, those behaviors do not change, and the emotions underneath do not change. It's a perfect map on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that conversation you have with your kids when they come home for dinner, you know, you ask them, you know, how was your day? And, you know, that conversation never <laughs> never works, right? No, nope. fine, much out of it. good. Right, exactly. So with these ideas, one of the things I think it was Dave Cooper suggested it to me, he said, oh, lead with vulnerability. You tell them about something you screwed up that day mm. and then lean back and kind of see what happens. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I should – That's a really good idea that I've stolen. So, yeah, this stuff applies to everything. I always find that when they're laughing hysterically at dad, the conversation tends to go good after that. And there's so many opportunities for that, so it's good. (laughs) An endless well. I think we both have a very deep well. Let me ask this final question before I do my little rapid-fire thing with you. When you You wrote The Culture Code, what were you hoping people would get from it? I don't know. I was hoping to kind of explore a mystery, right? I mean, that's what Mm. gets you going in any book. It's the Mm -hmm. mystery. And I was hoping like, okay, and all these groups have a bit of magic in them. I wanted to see what the magic was. It's not really magic, right? There's a thing there. So Mm -hmm. I I guess I just wanted to get smarter. Nice. Well, thank you because you're helping us all get a bit smarter. And I think whether it's a family or a group or a team or a big organization, there's just some fantastic stuff in there, some great examples. And it's always great to learn from the ones that are doing it well, and then they have a bit of an idea of why they're doing it so the rest of us can follow. So it's good stuff. So let me hit you with the rapid-fire questions. Every guest we've had on the show for the past four years, and it's always an interesting time, and you're great on your feet. So I'll jump out of the closet here and hit you with these questions you weren't prepared for. (laughs) All right. Bring it. Number one, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Make good things happen. Hmm. Who gave you that? My dad. Ah. All right. Way to go. 
Make good things happen. Well, military man probably made a lot of good things happen. So This is interesting for you because this will be right back into the talent world. What mm. one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Oh, I wish I could really play the guitar. I can just yeah. stumble around on it, but I wish I could really play it. I see somebody play guitars and it just melts me. Yeah, it's interesting that playing an instrument is always the number one feedback isn't it interesting we oh we rebelled against our parents who wanted us to give us lessons and yeah. you name it you know, who's who we've interviewed everyone says i wish i could play an instrument that's great what book has been most instrumental in your life oh my god too many of them but i'm gonna throw out the right stuff by tom wolf oh wow the space program just massively Impacted, kind of blew the top of my head off that somebody could write nonfiction, write about the real world in a way that was so cinematic and thrilling. And, wow. And that just knocked me over. And that was kind of the tuning fork. Did you have a feeling at that time that that's what you were going to set out to do? It, it hit me probably five years later. I probably read it when I was 15 or 16, and it wasn't until I was, I was about to go to medical school and uh, kind of took a left turn into journalism at the last second. Wow. Because of that book. Yeah. Wow. Left turn into journalism. I won't touch that. Okay, here is the next thing. <laughs> What movie do you watch over and over again? You're burned out, you're tired, you've been traveling, you come home, you're doing a little channel surfing, and there's a movie you've seen a bunch of times, but you'll always stop on it. What's the one you've watched over and over again? Talladega Nights. Come course. on! I mean, is there another movie that you do that? Ricky yeah. Bobby. <laughs> Ricky Bobby just kills me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's funny. great. Uh, you're probably an yeah. Anchorman fan, too, then. That's good. All right, last but not least, give me one thing left on your bucket list that you haven't done yet. I haven't done yet. Uh, I'm going to say go to Rome with my wife. All right. I'd like to do that. Well, it's the ancestral home of the Buffini, so go and enjoy. You'll have a great time. (laughs) Well, listen, thanks so much for being on here today. It's been a blessing. I really just value your work. I love clarity. I love people who think differently, who have that observational gene, and they were able to then put it down in a way that can help us. And I think uh, you've done a great job here with the Culture Code just like you did with the talent code. And uh, you've taken from individuals to groups. And I think the principles of safety, vulnerability, and purpose are very powerful, whether it's a big group, a small group, or a family. And so just really appreciate you. Thanks for your work. And I really enjoyed having you on today. I hope it was a fun time for you. I hugely enjoyed it. It's great to connect with you, Brian. You're living all this stuff, and you're an inspiration. Thanks very much. Thanks, bud. Okay, well, it was great having Daniel Coyle on the podcast today. I'm going to hand over to another inspiration, Mr. David Lally, our producer, and he has a few great words for all of you guys today. What a great way to start the year, Daniel. That was really powerful content. Thanks for sharing with us today. As Brian mentioned, Daniel has spoken at our event Mastermind before. This event is designed to inspire, motivate, and help unlock the best version of you. If you want to catch Brian live and hear from more dynamic speakers like Daniel, join us at Mastermind 2020, August 2nd to the 4th in sunny San Diego. You can find out more at buffiniandcompany.com slash mastermind. And with that, I'll leave you with Brian's mum for a little Irish blessing. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 